0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter of Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 23. We're going to cover verses 26 through 33. Jesus on the Via Dolorosa, on the way to the cross. Luke skips over the passage, the incident where the Roman soldiers mock Jesus. That's taken up in Mark and Matthew. I'm going to include that in my splice when I splice over my discussion of Mark 15:20 20 through 23 which has the parallel passage of Jesus on the Via Dolorosa so that we'll get the full picture here at Pontius Pilate here at the second appearance before Pontius Pilate where Jesus appears before Pilate the second time Pilate releases him to his soldiers his soldiers mock him and then Jesus starts out on the woeful journey to be crucified so I'm going to splice in my discussion of Mark 15 starting with verses 16 and going all the way to verse 23. And that splice begins now. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 15. We have just taken Jesus through his first and second appearances before Pontius Pilate at the Praetorium in Herod's palace on the west of Jerusalem. Jesus and Pilate are on the inside. Most of the time, the Jews, the chief leaders of the Jews, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the elders, they're out there screaming and hollering at Jesus and calling down all kinds of imprecations on his head. So finally, Pilate, all the time trying to release him, takes Jesus out there. Of course, Jesus has been beaten and bloodied up by Herod's soldiers, and he's been up all night, and he's worn out and exhausted. And Pilate says, Homo! behold the man, trying to get the Jews to say, look, hey, this guy can't be a king. Let him go. And the Jews said, no, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate says, okay, he's going to hand him over to be crucified. So this is where we are. We'll start in Mark 15, verses 16 through 19. Then the soldiers led him away into the courtyard, that is headquarters, and called the whole company together. That means they led him away from outside, inside the praetorium. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. Now let's go to Matthew. There's only one parallel passage for this section, which we'll call the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus. By the way, what time is this? Well, there's a dispute on the time. It could either be between 6 and 9 o'clock in the morning, depending on one way you read Mark. That's according to, and that's A.T. Robertson's view. Or you could take it between uh, uh, 9 and 12 o'clock, depending on another way you read Mark. We're not going to get into that. It's sometime in the morning, Friday morning. So we read Matthew 27:27 through 30. Let's start with 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into headquarters. It's a little bit clearer here. Took him outside from the courtyard, the gabatha, the, the pavement. They took him back inside the pra- praetorium, which the H. Holman Christian Study Bible translates as headquarters. That's Pilate's uh, headquarters. And gathered the whole company around him. The company is the band of soldiers who had arrested Jesus. John Gill says there's 500 or more of them. I don't know how he knows that. This would fulfill that famous prophetic Psalm 22 at verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Referring to the soldiers, the dogs. The NIV and the KGV both have soldiers instead of company. They specifically say soldiers. Notice that Jesus was flogged outside the praetorium and then he was carried into the praetorium, into the headquarters. So that means the Jews got to witness his his flogging by the Jewish soldiers. Matthew 27, verse 28, they stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet military robe. Notice that the Holman Christian Study Bible says it's a military robe. The robe, the Greek word, according to the NIV Study Bible, is the outer cloak of a Roman soldier, which, of course, they would probably have because they were soldiers. The Holman Christian Study Bible uses the adjective military. The NIV does not, but it was probably a military robe, probably an old cast-off coat of one of their officers. Now, there's a slight discrepancy as far as the color the mark passage says it was purple matthew says it was scarlet how do we reconcile that well it's very easy in my opinion scarlet and purple are close in color you can have red that's scarlet and put a little bit of blue in it and you got purple and purple can have a little bit of red in it and it's sort of reddish purple colors are always kind of I mean, a color can shade off mathematically. You just change the frequency of the colors that are in the in the color. Anybody that's ever messed with colors on a computer will know how iffy the colors are, how how imprecise the boundaries of colors are. So this is basically a reddish purple robe. This was the color of royalty. That's why they put it on him to make him look like a fake, to be a, a, a an ironical king, to mock him as being a king. John Gill says this, Matthew calls it a scarlet robe, and the Persic version here renders it a red garment. It was of a color resembling purple. It was pretty near it, and therefore so called, which is what kings were used to wear. And so in derision of him as a king, clothes him with this mock purple robe, and which was very likely one of the soldier's old coats, which summarizes everything I've said so far. We go to verse 29. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews. Now the reed in his right hand is an extra detail that's not in Mark. That is a mock scepter. The scepter was an iron rod that was a symbol of a king's authority. So they gave him, since they're making fun of him as a king, they gave him a reed for his scepter. And then they knelt down before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews. Now this is pretty painful. To make fun of the Son of God this way, it's pretty amazing. These soldiers had no idea what they were doing. If they had known, they had have to been totally insane to do what they did. Now, this crown of thorns, of course, is famous. Now, I'm going to read you something that's kind of interesting. Adam Clark says, well, first of all, what was the crown of thorns there for? Well, kings wear crowns, and so this was a mock crown to make fun of him as a mock king. But now Adam Clark said that the thorns were probably not meant to add to the physical torture. It was merely a way of mocking him, but not physically torturing him. Now you've seen these pictures with these crowns of thorns with these horribly long, sharp thorns that are like spikes. And you picture the thorn being the crown of thorns being pressed down into Jesus' head and then the spikes poke into his forehead and the blood comes out. Let me read this quote from Adam Clark. Many Christians have gone astray in magnifying the sufferings of Christ from this circumstance, and painters, the worst of all commentators, frequently represent Christ with a crown of long thorns, which one standing by is striking into his head with a stick. These representations engender both ideas, both false and absurd. Well, I would disagree that the idea is absurd. It's not absurd. John Gill, for example, believed thorns were there poking into his forehead, causing him pain and causing him to bleed. So it's not absurd. That's an overstatement by Clark, in my opinion. However, you know, it's just like miracles. You don't need to manufacture miracles in the, in the Bible. Jesus did plenty of miracles. He doesn't need you to make up some, and he was undergoing plenty of torture here. He didn't need us to make up any more torture than is necessary. And the reason I think Clark might be right about this is because the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. Have you ever seen those, those pictures of a thorns, How are the soldiers going to grab thorns like that and twist them together without ripping their hands up? I don't know. Adam Clark quotes another authority back in his day, and he says this, One may also reasonably judge by the soldiers being said to plait this crown, to plate it, to plant it, or twist it, that it was not composed of such twigs and leaves as were of a thorny nature. I do not find that it is mentioned by any of the primitive Christian writers as an instance of the cruelty used towards our Savior, before he was led to his crucifixion, till the time of Tertullian, who lived after Jesus' death at the distance of above 160 years. So the Greek word there, according to Clark, means something else. Interesting, is it not? But we're not going to overcome tradition on that. Now that Jesus has been mocked by the soldiers in the praetorium, the soldiers are getting ready to take him out now, to take him to the cross to be crucified so we're going to talk about Jesus on the way to, to the cross on the so-called Via Dolorosa the road of sorrows on the way to Golgotha the place of the skull where he was crucified. There's four well there's four, the four all four gospels mention him being taken out but John has almost nothing about it. Matthew and Mark have some stuff and Luke's got the most stuff. So we'll we'll look at Matthew, Mark and Luke. We'll start with let's start with Mark first starting at verse 20. And moving on down to verse twenty-one, they—excuse me—when they had mocked him, the soldiers had mocked him, had mocked Jesus. They stripped him of—they stripped Jesus of the purple robe, put his clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And think about how much that hurt when your flesh has been torn by those those thongs that the Roman whips had, the bone that was attached to the leather strips and his back was just in shreds, the flesh was, was showing, was ripped all up, and you put a cloak on that, the blood dries, and you rip the cloak off. So they stripped him of his robe, and they put his ordinary garments back on, and they put him out, let him out to crucify him. Now, you, you know, it seems to me this is senseless cruelty. It's not even done in the public. It's done just for the soldiers to make fun of him, how callous that is. Verse 21, Mark chapter 15, they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. And the reason for that, of course, is Jesus was worn out and exhausted. The criminals on the way to crucifixion always carried the crossbeam of their cross, at least the crossbeam, and it was heavy. And he was been up all night, been tortured, been through five kangaroo court hearings, screamed at the whole time, whipped mocked so he was tired so they got the soldiers got a man to carry the cross he was simon a Cyrenian. and cyrene, cyrene is in north africa he, that was his original place of origin he was in the countryside outside of jerusalem he came in from the country maybe to go to the passover feast he was the father of alexander and rufus we don't know who those guys are that's an extra detail that mark adds they brought jesus to the place called golgotha, golgotha which means skull place they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not take it let's turn now to the parallel passage in Matthew 27 verse 31 when they had mocked him they stripped him that's the soldiers stripped him of the robe the soldiers in the praetorium in Herod's i mean excuse me in Pontius Pilate's praetorium they stripped him of the robe put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him Why would they want to put his old clothes back on? Well, they wanted to be able to identify him as one option, as John Gill points out. They wanted to make sure that the person who was condemned was the person they crucified. That might be, or it could be that the four soldiers who were his his executioners might possess the old military robe. They didn't want to give up the robe. But at any rate, they ripped the clothes off, and as I said earlier, there was a painful process to do that. Now, they went and took him away to crucify him. Condemned criminals were always crucified on the same day of the condemnation. They didn't wait around like we do for several years in modern American jurisprudence. Jesus went on the Via Dolorosa, fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Verse 32 in Matthew 27 as they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced this man to carry his cross. As I mentioned earlier, Cyrene was a city in North Africa and Libya. It had a large population of Jews, and Simon was probably one of those Jews who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, as my NIV study Bible says. We read in Acts 6, 9, this, Then some, from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilician Asia, came forward and disputed with Stephen. So there's just a passing mention of a synagogue, that uh, something called the Freedman's Synagogue, which had in it Cyrenians as well as Alexandrians. So we see that they were foreigners who were living in Jerusalem. Now Simon of Cyrene helped Jesus carry the cross Jesus, as I had mentioned, had carried his cross for a ways and had become exhausted because he'd been cruelly flogged and been up all night. Now, it was a common practice for Romans to require the criminal to carry his own cross to his execution. But Jesus, being so tired, couldn't carry it out. Simon may have, instead of carrying the cross entirely on his shoulders, he may have merely assisted Jesus in carrying the cross, as both Adam Clark and John Gill claim. Now let's turn to Luke. Chapter 23, verse 26, to continue our story. As they led him away, the soldiers led Jesus away. They seized Simon a Cyrenian who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. We just read that in Matthew and Mark. I have some notes here on Simon that are in Luke, probably be better on Mark because Mark mentions that Simon had two sons, Rufus and Alexander, and this is just of minor interest, but it's, it's I'm interested in it. The NIV Study Bible says this Rufus and Alexander, the sons of Simon the Cyrenian, must have been known in Christian circles at a later time because of the way Mark just assumes his Christian readers will know who these guys are. Rufus and Alexander, first names, yeah, they were on a first name basis with them and knew who they were. The NIV Study Bible says perhaps Rufus and Alexander were associated with the church at Rome because in Romans 16.13 we read this. Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. So that Rufus is speculated by many to be the same Rufus who's the son of Simon the Cyrenian. Now, this gives us a hint that maybe later on Simon got saved because his son was saved. So maybe he was saved. I would imagine carrying Jesus' cross on the Via Dolorosa and, of course, probably watching the crucifixion and seeing everything that went on. I wouldn't doubt that he got saved. I bet we're going to see him in heaven. Let's go to verse 27. 8 and 9 in Luke 23. Verse 27, A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, The women without children, the wounds that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed are fortunate. Why would Jesus say, Don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Because of the terrible suffering that was going to befall Jerusalem some 40 years later in 8070 when the city was wiped out. And children, by the way, is the word, and it's not descendants, it's children as in the first generation of children, as in the children in your family circle, the Greek is. So... Weep for that you and that one generation. And by the way, it's not weep for generations and generations and generations of Jews all through the Middle Ages up to now. No, that's not what it means. It's talking about you and your children. That means all of you who are going to be around in 8070 when the city's going down. Jesus is constantly aware that the crime of his execution will be avenged. I'm going to give you three examples here Matthew 22 7. This is the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus finishes up the parable by saying this, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And the murderers he's talking about are those who were invited to the wedding feast but said they had better things to do. And of course, it was referring to the Jewish leaders. And the end of the parable, the man who gave the wedding feast, who stood for God the Father, he burned their city. He burned the Jew city down. Matthew 23, 38, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he's pronounced, I think it's seven or eight woes on him. Woe, woe, woe. As you see, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is your temple. It's going down. And then shortly after the Olivet Discourse with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24, 2, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, referring to the temple in Jerusalem. So that's why he said, weep, daughters of Jerusalem. You're going down. Yeah, you know, I might be pitiful and weak and getting ready to be crucified, but don't cry for me. What I'm going through is terrible, but you're going to go through something even worse. Verse 29. Look, the days are coming when they will say the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed are fortunate. Why would childless women be fortunate? Because if they had children, they'd see their children eaten and burnt up and killed and destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, Here's a woman who would have been better if she had never had a baby. Her name was Mary of Eliezer. This is written about in Josephus. Gill quotes the story here. When Titus, Titus is the besieging Roman general in the Jewish War, 66 through 70, when Titus had so closely encompassed the city with a wall that there was no coming out for provisions upon which a sore famine commenced so that they fed on dung and dirt and shoes and girdles, one rich and noble woman, whose name was Mary, the daughter of Eleazar, being stripped of all she had by the seditious, killed her own child and dressed it, and ate part of it, and the other part being found by the soldiers that broke in upon her. If you read the whole story in Josephus I'm, from my memory, I think that the soldiers turned away in disgust. This is I'm, The soldiers, it's the Jewish soldiers inside the city that were terrorizing the city. And I think as hungry as they were, they couldn't eat that ch- They just turned away and walked away in disgust, if I remember the story correctly. But in, the point is is that it would have been better not to have a kid than to have kids go through that, to get chopped up and eaten by your own mother. Now, those in the crowd following Jesus, they were mourning and lamenting him. Some of them were probably um, mocking him, too, as John Gill points out. Now, this might have been unusual because public mourning was not allowed for people ordered executed by the Sanhedrin, according to John Gill. But such mourning was allowed for those executed by the order of the Roman government. So the Christians there, the followers of Jesus, they were allowed to mourn, and I'm sure they were because it was terrible what they were seeing. You know, it's interesting, this crowd that was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king, and then all of a sudden they say, crucify him, crucify him. What did the crowds do after they saw Jesus on the cross? And they saw him die and they, and they saw it get dark and all the events of the crucifixion. After it was over, Luke 23:48, all the crowds had gathered, gathered for the spectacle of seeing Jesus dying on the cross. When they saw what had taken place, they went home striking their chest, mourning again. So this crowd was sort of fickle. Luke 23, verse 30 through 31, Jesus is still speaking to the women of Jerusalem, the daughters of Jerusalem then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. That means the people in Jerusalem in AD 70. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, that's a proverb there at the end. It's always been a little confusing to me. But let's first of all talk about the people saying, fall on us, talking to the mountains, fall on us. That's a quote from Hosea, Hosea 10, verse 8. The high places of Avon, the son of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorns and thistles will grow over their altars. They will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Jesus was well versed in the Old Testament, of course, and he quotes a passage from Hosea speaking of judgment coming, and he's referring, of course, to AD 70 when the Romans wiped out Israel. We also have another verse in Revelation 6.16 that's relevant. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Speaking to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us the same thing. Jesus says they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. Revelation, in my humble opinion, is referring to exactly the same event that Jesus is referring to in Luke 23. The destruction of Jerusalem in 80.70. I have an orthodox preterist view of Revelation. Adam Clark Quoting the Puritan divine Lightfoot says that all of Revelation six refers to eighty seventy. That's really nice because that's what I believe too, and uh, my view is not as extreme, even though it's a minority view in today's unfortunate dispensationalist Christian culture. It is a view that is taking hold because it's true. To be perfectly blunt about it, is this all this stuff is not innate in Revelation is not about the end of the world. It's about the end of the Jewish kingdom, the end of the age. Jesus used the exact same expression. Say to the mountains, on us, quote in Hebrews 8:10, as John uses in Revelation. Say to the mountains, on us and hide us. Why? Because we're going down. We're being destroyed in our judgment. Now let's look at this proverb. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? I'll give you two alternate ways to interpret that. In the NIV Study Bible says, does it this way. It says, well, a green tree is well watered. It's moist. Just like Israel was being well watered by Jesus the Messiah. If they treat the Messiah so horribly now when they have all the spiritual truth that the Messiah is giving them, how in the world are they going to treat the Messiah later when the Messiah is gone, gone back to heaven and Israel's is by itself in AD 70? Well, that might be. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown has got another way of doing it. They say that a green tree rejects fire, which means they reject punishment. But a dry tree invites fire, and his point is is that when they get dry in eighty seventy, they're going to be ripe for punishment. They're going to burn down easy. In other words, I tend to think that Jameson fossum Brown have got the best way of interpreting that. But at any rate, he is Jesus is contrasting the time of now when he's with them to the time later when Jerusalem will be ripe for judgment. Let's go to Luke twenty three verses thirty two and thirty three. Two other Two others, criminals, were also led away to be cru- executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Now, I haven't mentioned much about time because people dispute about the time. I'm going to give you A.T. Robertson's view. He says this is right about nine a.m. to noon on Friday that Jesus was nailed up. About nine o'clock in the morning, and the first three hours on the cross, or when. The, all the events in the Gospels that it talks about what happened on the cross happened that's what, what, what time they happened. but it's not easy to tell the precise order of the events that happened during these three hours because the Gospels do not present them in the same order in the, or in the same detail. so we'll look at that in our next audio, in the first three hours on the cross. Now this place that Jesus was taken to is called the Skull in Hebrew Golgotha. It cannot now be definitely located, although I will say that there's a tourist place run by some Protestants that is purportedly, most likely, they say, the place of the Golgotha because you look at the mountain, as limestone mountain with pits and caves in it, and it does look like a bunch of skulls. The pits and the caves look like the the eye holes and the mouth holes in a skull, and the white limestone looks like the bony part of the skull. And I remember I, I was at this place, which they speculated was Golgotha, and they were saying, see here, look at this and see how it looks like skulls, and they were facing the mountain on the other side at 12 o'clock high, and I was at 9 o'clock, say, on the side of the mountain, I'm looking at it, and it looked just like a bunch of skulls. It was, I said, no wonder they call this place the place of the skull. But it turned out that's not what the tour guide was pointing at, what I was pointing at. And I went to look at their point, and I said, well, that sort of looks like a skull. Well, it sure looks more like a skull over here. So I went and got one of the tour guides and brought him over, and I said, look, not, not, not tour guide, I'm sorry, one of the docents. And I said, look at here. I said, this looks a lot more like the skull than that place over there that you're showing the tourist. And he looked at it, and he says, my gosh, I've never seen that before. So it struck him, too. But that might not be why it was named a skull the fact that it looked like a skull, or several skulls, a lot of skulls. It could be that the place was infamous because so many executions took place there and there was skulls lying around on the ground. But it does show what a shame and disgrace to which Jesus was brought to be brought to such a horrible place. By the way, why do we call this place Calvary? In Hebrew it's Golgotha, in Latin it's Calvary. The Latin word for skull is similar to Calvary. And... The place of bare skulls is called Calvi Capitus area, the Calvi Capitus area, and Calvi Capitus sounds like Calvaries, the Aramaic word or the Hebrew word. Aramaic is a dialect of Hebrew, so John actually calls it, uh, it says in Hebrew it's Golgotha, the place of the skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha in verse 17 of John 19. All right, so it either looked like skulls or there were skulls laying about. That's why they called it. Golgotha. All right, let's turn to Mark chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. That's as far in Mark as we're going to go in this audio. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, put his clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus's cross. He was Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not take it well let's turn to Matthew 27 verse 33 to discuss this passage because it's almost it's very similar to what i just read in Mark so Matthew 27 verse 33 now let's finish up the story of Jesus on the Via Dolorosa with the last verse here that we're going to take up in Matthew 27 verse 34 They gave him, that's the soldiers, gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now this is in Mark 2, but the not drinking it part is only in Matthew. None of this is in Luke and John. Gall was a narcotic to kill pain, according to the NIV study Bible. Tradition says that the women of Jerusalem would give gall to crucified criminals. The practice of doing this probably came from this verse, Proverbs 30, verse 6. Give beer to the one who is dying and wine to one whose life is bitter. Beer is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. Give him a bud. I don't know, man. I think it's probably. The KGV has strong drink, which to me sounds a little more reasonable. Why did Jesus not drink this wine mixed with gall? And by the way, in Mark, it's not gall that it's mixed with. It's myrrh that it's mixed with, which is kind of a perfume of fragrance probably had the same result of making you kills the pain dulls the pain and if gall and myrrh are different and i think they are then it's probably that the wine was mixed with both gall and myrrh and mark mentions one and matthew mentions the other but why did jesus not want to drink it well john gill gives a off the wall suggestion which he denies is that Jesus is thinking, since this wine belonged to Gentiles, that wine might have been offered to idols, therefore I'm not going to drink it. I don't think so. The NIV Study Bible says it's because Jesus wanted to stay fully conscious till his death, conscious until his death, so that he could take on the sins of the world with a clear head, and I think that's exactly the reason why he refused to drink. Now, before he refused to drink, Matthew tells us that he did taste it. Why did he taste it? Well, it could be, this is my speculation, he didn't know it was gall and myrrh mixed in the wine. He might have just thought it was wine. He was thirsty. Of course, crucified people get thirsty real fast out there in the sun. And then when he realized there was gall and myrrh in there, he said, no, I don't don't want any more. Because he realized that the gall was in the wine. It could have been that he he tasted it first because he was trying to show the Romans that he was not contemptuously dismissing their help, being arrogant about the whole thing. I'm angry at you for putting me up on this cross. No, he was still like a gentle sheep, led to the slaughter. And so he might have just been polite. Well, that's a great idea. That's John Gill's idea. I think that's very creative, but very wrong. I think it's just he tasted it thinking that it was undrugged at first because he was thirsty. And then when he realized it had drugs in it, he, he turned it down. All right, that's the end of Jesus on the Via Dolorosa. All right, I have now returned from my discussion of Mark. Chapter fifteen verses sixteen through twenty-three which discusses Jesus on the Via Dolorosa, which and this discussion covers also Luke twenty-three verses twenty-six through thirty-three, our current audio, and so we're finished with that. In our next audio in Luke 23, we're going to discuss Jesus' first three hours on the cross. That will be Luke 23 verses 33 through 43. I hope you stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to this audio.